Kia ora. I'm Pete Gillespie from Garage Project in Wellington, New Zealand, and this is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer. Uh, now, my guest today is the inimitable Scotty Hargrave from the mighty, mighty Bolter Brewing Company in Australia. He's here for a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and is topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com forward slash allaboutbeer. Uh, make a little donation. They don't need much. Price of a delicious IPA. You'd buy these guys a drink, wouldn't you? Do it now. Uh, right. We will kick on to this interview in just a moment. Uh, but first, this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. They've been working with brewers on a wide range of ingredients and delicious beers. First Tea combines the flexibility of order sizes with the experience you need to create innovative and successful tea beers. They get you the most direct from farm tea selection, so you are working with flavorful and consistent products. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com. All right. So, welcome, Scotty. Uh, now, I've known Scotty for a number of years. We've brewed beers together. Uh, he's a wonderful brewer and an absolutely delightful human being. And it is an immense pleasure to be able to chat to him today. Now, I always find it incredibly interesting to find out what brought people to brewing, Scotty. So tell us, what is your story? How did you get started? Well, first off, uh, thanks, Pete, for having <laughs> me. And and thank you, John, in the background. Um, yeah. Hey, everyone out there. Um, what brought me to brewing was, I guess, curiosity uh played a big part for me back around the turn of the millennium if anyone can remember that that was you know that was a pandemic and about four zombie apocalypses ago um i started to get interested in um um i don't know i just i guess i started to go looking at the periphery of beer you know as as, as it sort of stood in australia at around you know the year 2000 or so and um there was just the the very beginnings, the green shoots, I suppose, of an Australian craft beer industry. Um, uh, what is now a very big brewery called Little Creatures was just sort of firing off their pale ale, which was back then still called Little Creatures Live. Um, I think Chuck Hahn might have just been getting the James Squire beers going in Sydney and and um, you know a couple of the bigger sort of retailers opened sort of mega stores if you like where i lived in canberra uh here in oz and um i just started to notice these beers with different labels sort of showing up and and um you know i sort of got interested in that i was playing in bands and i was you know a concreter so i was drinking lots of a beer called melbourne bitter in tinnies oh, which, which if you, a lot of a lot of our a lot of our um listeners will be in the united states and they should realize that melbourne bitter is one of the greatest beverages in the entire world isn't it 
It is. It is. It, it's in the same family tree as Foster's Lager. <laughs> I've, um, I, I have to say I've drunk quite a lot of it in my time as well. It's, um, it can be very refreshing. It, it can. It can. It's, it's, it's good for, uh, you know, it, it, it has its place like most beers do. And um, I just started to see a bunch of different beers and I began to sort of dabble, I guess. And, and then it, at basically the same time, I started to, to take notice of all these German beers that were um, suddenly available, you know, um, not, you know, German Pilsners and Hefeweizens and Dunkelweizens. And then that sort of spilled over into beers, you know, Belgian beers like Hugarden and Leffe and all these sorts of things. And um, yeah, it was just, it was just that, that green door that you need the secret knock to and the special handshake that I knew nothing about, but, once you realise the door's there, you want to go in and have a bit of a peek yep. in, so on the other side. And then I realised, oh, okay, this is where this is where the real beer really is. And uh, sort of stepped you, through the door. Were I, you homebrewing, Scotty? No, not by that. Well, around a couple of years before that, uh, my wife and I bought our first house, you know, and um, did what everybody does when they first get a mortgage, which is panic shit themselves, decide they're only going to be able to pay things <laughs> and have to make homebrew because uh, you won't be able to afford anything else. So I, I had a few goes on the um, Cooper's kits, uh, you know, the sort of cake mix versions, I suppose, of brewing. And um, they were clean, fun, inspiring. I mean, I was probably going down the wrong track. They probably tasted more like the beer I would eventually end up drinking than the massive mainstream lagers I thought I was trying to make. You know, I was just trying to make something recognisable as beer. So gave up on that, went back to drinking better, you know, just went back to drinking beer and then eventually sort of stumbled into, uh, you know, the sort of formative Australian craft beers and all these great European imports. And I just spent the next few years um, annoying all the people I knew trying to get them to drink similar sort of beers and you know it was a for me it was that discovery that that real voyage of discovery and I was sort of wanting to share it with people they're like hey did you know like there's a whole nother thing that's also beer and it's not you know it's not the shit that bloody sponsors the cricket and the football and all this sort of stuff it's do you remember, you know, the, do you remember being the pivotal, made do you remember yeah. the pivotal brew the 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 actual bottle of beer that changed your mind that opened your, yeah, yeah. Your, your third eye to the world of beer. What was it? So it was Erdinger Dunkelweizen. And one Christmas there, before I was a brewer, um, I bought myself a box, a gift box of these Erdinger 500ml bottles at, at one of the big retailers. And there was a couple of Heppies and a couple of Crystal Weizens. Um, there might have been a, you know, the the Oktoberfest sort of wheat beer they do every year in there as well. But there, there was also this evil black bastard sitting in that box. And I was, I was really, <laughs> I, was, I was actually quite intimidated by it. So it sat in the back of the fridge, like for, uh, you know, a few weeks while I'd sort of guzzled all these other ones. And I came home from a hard day of concreting one Friday afternoon, I think. And, um, you know, Mother Hubbard's opened the, the cupboard and that's all that was there. So, uh, I just sort of took a deep breath and cracked this beer open and then suddenly it was like another door inside the door to the back room opened up and I was like, holy cow. I was like, how can a beer that looks so dark and evil be so soft and beautiful and 
and lovely and inviting. And that really did, that did my head in. That sort of was the beer that made me go, there's something really special to beer. It's not just, you know, something that you sort of to fuel your goofing off for the weekend or whatever. Yeah. It's it, it's something much bigger and much more complex and much more uh, a part of, you know, human history than that, you know. It, it really was quite profound for me, I suppose. So It's interesting. I think Evan and I chatted briefly about this last week, the fact that there's this sort of, you know, there's that that Japanese word otaku, which is sometimes negative, but it also means something that is far more than a hobby. It's an obsession. And beer's really got that, doesn't it? Like, you know, people will just do do anything. It just it's it's it can change somebody's life, uh, often hopefully yeah. for the best. Yeah. Well, I you know, we would all probably you and I certainly would agree with that. I know my family certainly would for sure. I mean once um you know once the great mistress that is beer got her sort of claws into me that was sort of it you know it became like i said several years of just searching searching and it, and that's how stupid i am it never dawned on me to actually become a brewer or learn to i was i was learning more about different beers that i liked and didn't like and beer styles but i never really got behind the you know the the nuts and bolts of beer what what how do you make it what puts it together what's what what is the difference between an ale and a lager like i don't know i just didn't bother with that for a while and then eventually um i was working uh i was doing some concrete for some family a couple of hours away from canberra uh one summer and i had an auntie of mine who's you know obviously she lost not lost patience but i think she was speaking for all the rallies, all the relatives, when um, she said, gee, you uh, you seem pretty obsessed about this beer thing. Why don't you do something about that, Scotty, you know, which was her way of, like, can you just shut up? Like, <laughs> We've all heard about your craft beer and your, and your snazzy European beers. Now just shut up for a while. Um, so I went back to Canberra and... Um, basically um, enrolled in an adult education course, which was on the history of beer, which was at the uh, the uh, much-loved and now-gone and much-fabled uh, Wigan Pen um, brew pub yeah. in, in the middle of Canberra. Um, and a guy called Lockie McComish, who, who owned the place, he did this half-day history of beer adult education course. So after about a 20-minute tirade about excise, uh, he sort of got into it and he um, he sort of explained the history of it, you know, going back several thousand years and all, all these sort of bits and pieces. And then he just went and got a, a few handfuls of malt and put them in a like a lunchbox esky or cooler, I guess our US friends would call it, boiled a jug, put some hot water in and just replicated a very simple mash. And as soon as I sort of smelt those aromas, that, that cereal biscuity you know all of that aroma just grabbed me grabbed me by the nuts actually pete and i was just dumbfounded because apart from mixing a few cooper's gooey kits i'd had absolutely nothing to do with brewing but all those aromas were just so familiar very very primal like it was mm. just doing something to my brain chemistry and and i was just flabbergasted you know and but but somehow it seemed really familiar and i, I to this day, I don't know what that is, unless that's runs through every, you know, most human beings that maybe it's a, 
you know, bees are core food group. <laughs> that's why that's why I kind of recognize it's, a, it's incredibly comforting, isn't it? It's oh, a, it's an incredibly comforting smell, isn't it? It's like it does. I know exactly what you mean, Scotty. It does something really quite special. So yeah. from there, where did you go? And I mean, look, maybe you could explain to obviously American listeners what chart chart your entry into the brewing world uh, alongside what's been happening to to beer and craft beer in Australia. Yeah, well, um, I guess from that initial, um, you know, that that half day course that I was just talking about, um, the guy running the course, Lockie, said, "Hey, you should go and see these guys." Um, because I had said to him, "Is there a way that you can get into brewing, you know, for a living without having have a, you know, a chemical engineering degree or a food science degree?" I was just a dumb concreter, so I didn't really understand how that all worked, and. He said, yeah, you can if you're good enough and you've got enough passion and blah, blah, blah. And he said, but you should go and see these guys. And there was a poster of the Canberra Brewers up on the wall, which was a home brew club in Canberra. So um, my wife badgered me to go to the next meeting of the Canberra Brewers uh, that was a couple of weeks um, past then. And um, off I went, met some folks, um, made a couple of kit beers, um, almost like a Hogarden sort of, uh knock off i suppose and you know it was one of the most nerve-wracking nights of my life i think was taking that beer in and, and letting other people try it so uh that freaked me out but they were all surprised that it was actually a kit beer they thought it was better than that and um that little bit of encouragement sort of spurred me on and a lot of these guys had hand me down brew kits you know so you'd be able to like hey scotty uh yeah you know that dude over there he's got one of those um you know, he's got a Gatorade mash tun. You should uh, hit him up. See, I know he's not using it anymore. And he's also got an old wash copper that you could use as a kettle and it's hiding under his house because I saw it last week. And, you know, so I was, a, I was able to cobble all the gear together and started brewing at home. And very, you know, pretty quickly after that, I started to get the, got the, uh, I guess, got the confidence up to actually put a couple of beers in competitions and they started to do really well. And, you know, the better they the beers went, the more confidence I had or the more I was searching and trying new things and whatnot. And, and the end result was about 23 months, just under two years after I'd um, started homebrewing, I ended up um, being asked to be the head brewer at the Sunshine Coast Brewery, which is um, on the east coast of Australia. It's about two hours north of Brisbane. And that was in August 2008. And back then, I think the Australian craft, well, the Australian beer industry full stop, including all the big guys, I think, totaled about 135 breweries or something like that. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was, it was, I guess, Australian, you'd, you'd, you'd had, you know, the little creatures and James Squire and, and Matilda Bay, and they sort of all had short, sharp rises and then sort of basically went backwards. And, you know, so we had a blip of craft beer sort of the very end of the 90s, early 2000s, and sort of went quiet for a bunch of years. And just as I got back into it, there were a few more sort of starting. And so I went to the Sunshine Coast Brewery, um, was there for exactly a year before I moved on to um, a little brewery, and it was a very little brewery, then called Stone and Wood which was uh, back in my home state of New South Wales because we'd moved north about a 1,000 miles, you know, lock, stock and barrel, wife and two kids. 
um, to go up to the Sunshine Coast, um, very, very beautiful part of the world. And then I got the opportunity to go into Stone and Wood as their first full-time sort of production employee. And, um, yeah, we ended up making a little beer called Stone and Wood Pacific Ale, which sort of, you know, stormed the barricades here in Australia as a as one of the, you know, the really early signs that craft beer was taking off and and possibly had a future. You know, there are a bunch of other guys that are around before that for a long time, yeah. But that was the pivotal beer, wasn't it? It was the beer that jumped the chasm, didn't it? It, it You know, it wasn't, it wasn't just a beer for the pointy end of craft brewers. It was a beer that I think captured a lot of people's imagination. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, it had, you know, it was... 4.4% alcohol. It was it was reasonably hazy, um, certainly unfiltered, you know, and it was really basically for the domestic market around here, around the sort of, you know, the the Byron Bay region, really. And mm. the main beer was going to be the, our sort of, you know, heli-style lager that was in bottle, green bottles and, you know, very European-looking. And But it was uh, Pacific Ale, and that at the time it was called Draft Ale when I first started making it, so... Uh, and probably people probably called it drought ale <laughs> at times. We still have trouble with that word draft here in Australia. I mean, you have too many droughts, so people just flip. But, uh, you know, the big thing about that beer, I suppose, well, there's a couple of things, is it really heralded a new era in what craft beer could be and and that there were promising signs and a lot of people were, were taking to, to this little beer. But uh, I guess one of the... the the biggest and most obvious things that it's known for is is its introduction to the world uh, in a lot of cases of a, a little Aussie hop called Galaxy. Mm. And, and um, uh, look, we'll chat about Galaxy later, I think. Um, yeah, sure. it, yeah, that'd be excellent. Scotty, I should, yeah, you should keep going because we, we haven't got, even got to Bolter yet. Uh, oh, right. and... okay, yeah. So I uh, got in there, did that for four years, then I went to another brewery uh that was also in byron i was very lucky to have uh you know jobs at the only two breweries in a town of five thousand people so that was cool i <laughs> uh, went did that for 18 months and then got uh then got asked to see if i'd be in, involved in a brewery that was potentially going to start up on the gold coast uh which is just over the border in queensland about an hour south of uh three quarters of an hour north of um byron bay and about an hour south of brisbane and um that was uh, with half a dozen guys, including some um, very famous surfers. And um, uh, I got asked, would I be like to be involved? So I went and had a look and met the guys. Um, there wasn't much to look at, actually. We, we had a shed that they'd asked, could I build my dream brewery in there? And I thought, yeah, I probably could. And they said, well, that's good because we've already taken out a five-year lease. So <laughs> we're kind of, kind of stuck with that building. But it was, a, you know, it's a great building to start with. So um, a big thing for me that it wasn't going to be some sort of celebrity-driven, um, you know, um, buy and flip sort of situation. And, and it turned out it wasn't, you know. The guys were very, very sincere in that they wanted to be part of a brewery and, were very honest in the fact that they had absolutely no idea to how about how to go about it. So uh, the sort of assembled um, uh, Ant McDonald, our CEO, and Sterling Howland, our brand director, and myself, and uh, another guy called Aaron Waters, and and as I was basically uh, tasked with getting the building right and all that sort of stuff, and I put all the gear together and 
I knew the beers I wanted to make on this thing and I just wanted to make sure that when we kicked off, we kicked off with something that wasn't um, just, a, you know, just another stand in the back of the queue, American-style pale ale or blonde ale or, you know, I just wanted our thing to be a little bit different and um, luckily I already had a little beer that I'd pretty much developed at home in my garage. It was ready to go and looking for a home and that was, uh, that was our XPA, our flagship, so... Um, Which is one of the most smashable, delicious beers that I've ever had. It's quite remarkable. It's an awesome beer. If, if any of the listeners have never been to Australia, they should definitely go and have a little bit of that. Yeah, so um, thank you. That's very, very kind of you. Um, and we were pretty confident that we would, you know, that we would go okay. I mean, you just, you never know. I thought building a... Um, a 35 heckle, I guess the guys would call it a 30 barrel brew house. Uh, yeah. Straight off the bat is a pretty uh, audacious sort of way to start things. And, you know, I basically thought I was building an oil tanker really for an unknown, you know, brewery that had never made a beer. I had a bunch of, bunch of other brewers in the industry here in Oz who were, once they'd heard about us, were offering me sort of, brewery space oh you know do you want to do you want to brew your first batches here and you know you can come and use some tanks of ours and all this sort of stuff and I was adamant that no you know right from the start every drop had to come out of that brewery that I was still yet to put together so sort of held off and held off and held off and then um March I said yes to Bolter in March 9th 2015 and March 8th 2016 we rolled the first kegs out of the brewery. So I don't know what planning is like in uh, over there, Pete, but like to, to be able to say, you know, from scratch in 364 days, have a brewery built and beers out the door was pretty, um, pretty good That's going. pretty impressive. Yeah, especially in Australia, I would say. Y- yeah, yeah, because every, you know, every council has, you know, different planning rules and, you know, all, all these sorts of, uh, you know, legislative and administrative bits and pieces that have to work together. So, so you know, in the, you know, when the dust has settled, uh, you know, that we may look back and see that as actually one of the, the, the most amazing things of all that happened that we could oh, yeah. get going that quick, you know. Because as you know, you so start was... brewing, you burn through the cash pretty quick, especially oh, if yeah. you haven't started making beer yet. So. Absolutely. So that was 2016. That you yep. you were so fast forward now. Where is where is Bolter at now? Um we are basically full. Um <laughs> which is you know, which is a, a good place to be. I I put together the um the 30 barrel four vessel DME kit in 2018. I put in another kettle. In 2019, I put in another Lauder ton. Um, which helped us sort of fill the gaps. Um, by that stage, we'd already ordered a Crohn's uh, combi cube, a 60-heck combi cube. And, of course, uh, when sort of February and March 2020 happened to the entire world, uh, we had the Crohn's, Crohn's guys telling us that our uh, September 2020 uh, commissioning date for this brew house probably wasn't going to happen because... The borders all over the world were closing. The Crohn's, you know, European-based Crohn's guys were all being recalled back to Germany and back to their families, which is quite understandable. And 
and the initial conversations were, well, um, yeah, this is going to be interesting. We don't know how we can get the commissioning engineers and these guys out to you. And uh, your September sort of, you know, first production dates or whatever look pretty unlikely. And, unfor- you know, for from our side, it was like too bad. We have to we have to make this happen. So we were ended up uh, assembling a small team, um, uh, myself and a couple of other guys uh, that we had here in Australia, um, guys who work for Bolter now and and um, contract Bolter, and we had a couple of uh, the Crohn's guys um, commissioning uh, engineers, software engineers, and commissioning brewmaster all dialing in every night across sort of July and August in uh 2020 and we became the first piece of crones equipment remotely commissioned anywhere in the world so that's awesome that was pretty crazy so you know so we got the we got that guy in and we um our tanks over time had sort of moved up from i'm going to try and do this in american terms from we've got 34 60 barrel tanks we've got 13 240 barrel tanks and we've got 13 400 and something barrel tanks so we're basically full mate we're we're, we're pretty well chocolate <laughs> at the moment so i think uh i think we just cracked for for 2022 140,000 barrels so wow. when, yep. when i tell that to our american friends that, that that's happened inside sort of six six and a half years uh, they sort of laugh at me mostly and then they realize that i mean it so <laughs> yeah so it's it's been a wild ride pete which i'm sure you know all about um yeah yeah that's it's, that's it's very it's, impressive scotty so oh, we're actually going to take a short break now uh for this message and then come right back for more of this conversation with Scotty Hargrave from Bolter Brewing. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. They've been working with brewers on a wide range of ingredients and delicious beers. First Tea combines the flexibility of order sizes with the experience you need to create innovative and successful tea beers. They get you the most direct from farm tea selection, so you are working with flavorful and consistent products. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com. Welcome back. Uh, I'm Pete Gillespie from Garage Project chatting to Scotty from Bolter Brewing in Australia. So we've had the background of um, Scotty's uh, journey into the wonderful world of brewing and, of course, the rise and rise of the mighty Bolter, which must be one of the biggest craft brewers in Australia now. Is that right? Yeah, um, I think we are. Yeah, yeah, we'd be, we must be. We'd be up there. I actually had, um, when I was over in uh, Hop Harvest last year, I think um, when I mentioned to, um, you know, different folks are asking, like, how much beer do you guys make? And when I told them, I got told three or four times that we might be in the sort of top 20, 25 in the US as well. Right? Wow. Which you've made uh, it. You've made it, Scotty. You've made I don't it. know if that's actually true, but it's pretty mind blowing if it is. It and, would be. It would be indeed. Um, yeah. I don't know. Now, I just don't really think about that too much because it would just make yeah. me melt down, I think. It would make you nervous, wouldn't it? And then you <laughs> yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't know what to do next. Now, look, Scotty, you're one of the most passionate brewers that I know. Um, and I really 
I want to know what, as brewers, I think I always, I, I go through little phases, different things excite me. I get fixated with certain things. And I'm very interested to know what, what, what excites you at the moment? What, what really makes your beer go all frizzly? What are, what's the excitement for you in brewing? Mate, I think it's, it's, it's really at the moment, it's, it's like the, it's promising that there might actually be this long held, um, you know, long heralded, I should say, return of the glory of lag beers and Pilsner beers and, and these sorts of things. So, I mean, it's great to see even here in Australia, there's a, there's a few breweries that are really making their mark with great lagers, not just, you know, fuck off huge IPAs or something like that, you know, that, that it's good to see that there is people starting to really understand, you know, nuance and, and integration and, you know, and that glorious simplicity of something that's just really, really well made and, whether just those intrinsic, um, albeit only a few ingredients, just really sing together. I mean, that's what that's what I think in a lot of ways got me into beer in the first place is when it started to take my breath away that you could go, how can this be so good? And I, I can't even tell why it's so good. It's pushing so many buttons and I don't even know where these buttons are, but it's pushing them and, you know, and that's that's for me in a lot of ways is the real magic of beer. And um, yeah. I've certainly seen, you know, over the last few years, an awful lot of great lagers coming out of the US, obviously. Uh, yeah. We've we've both got a bunch of friends over there that are making, you know, sensational lagers. And, mm. you know, there's that. I've been, I guess, in the last sort of 18 months, two years, I've been really playing around with trying to get dry hopping right in Pilsners in particular. So talk, talk to us about that. What I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of our audience here are, they're reasonably technical. What do you? What is the? What is the secret? If you wish to share about dry hopping in a pilsner, I, I think it's. I really think for me, I can. I can only, you know, talk about what what I'm trying to control in myself is that idea of like not overdoing it, of having, mm. of having soft hands, you know, of, of getting all that, uh, you know, the if you're going to go the trouble of dry hopping. Um, then you want a return from from that, obviously. But at the same time, you want to be true to your original intention. So that's always the hardest thing to me. Like I'm quite often, you know, particularly when I first started doing it, was I'd have buckets and buckets of hops, and then I'd just I'd go to tip them all in, and I'd find a way to struggle against myself yeah. to put that last bucket in, you know, and and to learn that that restraint would actually make a much better beer. And that's it's been le less is funny. more, less is more Absolutely. isn't it, with, with these. And I mean, it, you know, it's, it's hard after years and years of, of us pushing the grams per litre uh, of dry hop to its absolute maximum. It's basically to the point where like there's just solid in the tank and you have to squeeze out a <laughs> tiny drip of, of yeah. super hopped IPA at the end. It is, it takes quite a lot to go back to restraint. I found the same thing. I've uh, interestingly, as well, like hot side as well with with lagers mm -hmm. being restrained with things because you know sometimes you know you put almost an amount that's so tiny you'd think it wouldn't actually really deliver very much, but you get an awful lot out of it when there's when there's oh. space to actually taste it and recognize it. It gives it room, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of my favourite records, this is going to sound a bit weird, is Regatta de Blanc by the police. And 
that's such a good record because the songs are really good because all the players, all the inputs, all the ingredients are really good, but everybody's yeah. got room. You know, they interweave and mesh into each other, but nothing is colliding with with anything else. Nothing's talking over anything else. It's not a big muddied mess. And I think that's exactly what, you know, hot side lagers are all about as well, you know. Mm. I mean, I think mm. those, for me, it's about first word hopping and, um, and um 15, you know, 10, 15 minute editions before flame out. There, that late kettle edition, I think, is super important from a from a sort of a palate weight and a mouthfeel thing. And not necessarily that it's gonna be like blow your mind from hop aroma or character, but it eats that the, there's something that just satiates the palate when you make those additions. And and you know, as beers like that are like all beer, is about balance, you know. And mm. Getting those hot side additions right, as well as the dry hop, the timing, the amounts, and and the varieties right. You know, I mean, because because what's really intriguing me about this is is to be able to produce a beer that's recognisably a good, clean, crisp pilsner, mm. but that all those all those extra hop characters, because you've decided to to go down that track, that that there's enough definition and integration in that as well. Mm. You know, what you want every you want it to count if you're going to go to the trouble of potentially wrecking a beer. You want you want you want it to count. And when you know, I'm really happy with some of the ones I've I've got at the moment. I actually brought one home um, from work yesterday that I'm I'm looking at is probably like a a West Coast you know pills. And I know, like I'm looking at obviously guys like Highland Park and and yeah. um, you know and Evan at Green Cheek and and you know there's there's lots of guys particularly on the west coast that are that are really doing that and doing it well these days you know and and another thing that really intrigues me about this this dry hop pills thing is it's 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 almost like you've got IPA coming one way and pills coming in the other and maybe at the end of all this they'll all just meet together as this, this thing called hoppy beer you know absolutely absolutely I'm, I'm all, yeah I'm i mean I'm, I've, I've always been quite a fan of ignoring stylistic names and just doing whatever tastes really great and that yeah yeah i mean you and i have talked about this i think we were both over both of us in our last trip over to the states for the hop harvest i think i mean for me that was that was absolutely the standout um you know the especially those la brewers um, mm. you know such drinkable beers with so much flavor you mentioned timing scotty for your dry hops mm -hmm. I mean, do you have any little pearls of wisdom you'd share with people around when you would dry hop because it's yeah well you know, that's yeah hot my topic. thing is my, my thing is uh probably depends a bit on your yeast strain and and fermentation performance and personal preference but for me um I like to start out, you know, reasonably cool, sort of 10C or so, and and slowly step up the fermentation over about 12, 14 days. Mm. And I'll use get. I'm sorry for the folks out there. I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit, but I usually get them up to about 17C. So mm -hmm. where they're doing a diacetyl rest, um, and then I'll usually dry hop after they've been at 17 for you know four or five days. And give them another four or five days, and then slowly step them back down. You know, yep. Let let yard let let lager yeast do what they're meant to do, which is mm. you know, for me, it sort of goes slowly up the mountain and slowly back and down, slowly down the other side. 
Yeah, that is yeah. that is beautiful yeah. and poetic, Scotty. You're an excellent <laughs> brewer and a poet. Um, maybe we should talk hops. Let's talk hops. Sure. Shall we? What excites yeah. you most in the world of hops, Scotty? Uh, you know what? There is so much going on all over the place. Uh, it's hard to sort of keep track of it all. Um, New Zealand hops are very, very exciting, Pete. Um, mm, they are. All, all those nuggets you guys have over there. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm waiting to see that, you know, that one day there will be, you know, enough for a waka to go around, <laughs> all those yeah. sorts of things. You know, um, I, think sure we, you... I think I think Evan and I ended up chatting a little bit about Rewaka. Uh, it's a it's a obviously a problematic hop at times. Um, how do you deal with it best? I when you, you know can what? get hold of it, which when is I can get really... hold of it, I just yeah, <laughs> I just I treat it as yeah, I'm very very protective of it, and I, I just. I think more than anything, I just it's gratitude that I've actually got some to play with. So I don't, I don't chuck it around the place willy nilly, if you like. I think it's mm. it's times can be, uh, you know, can be challenging um, for sure, and um, it's a bit like herding the cats. But when you when you get it right, and you can, particularly, I like to blend. I'm a cereal blender, like probably like most folks. So I'll generally, um, you know, I'll probably blend that. And I've found with Rewaka, it's one of those funny ones where sometimes the less of it you, you use, the more impact it can have, Absolutely. which is confounding because I'm pretty simple. But hmm. I think that's that's a real thing. I'm seeing it a lot of that lately where I go, oh, right, I've still got 10 bags of this left. I'm going to throw eight of them in this beer. And I'll be like, well, hang on, why not? I'll put two in. Hmm. I'll you know I'll consider what else I'm going to put in and around it. There might be something else that's carrying the heavy you know the, a heavier load, mm. but I'll have some of this in there. You know I think it's I do use a lot of it in dry hopping a little bit, a little bit really again late kettle, yeah. uh, with Rewaka. I think it it I think it goes really well with um, obviously you know some of the big guys the the citrus and the mosaics and mm. you know just got to be careful a little bit. I sort of. And I don't just go, well, I'll cut it into thirds and put a third of that, a third of that, a third of that. It's quite often more convoluted than that, you know. Yep. It's, I'd, it's, I'd agree uh, with you, Scotty. Less is definitely more with our, with with Ruwaka. It's um, it's an interesting one. Uh, I, I do believe that we should be able to be getting more soon. Um, I think one of the big problems with it was that, it, it, it you know, I remember when it first came out, <clears throat> uh, it's probably, well, well over... 10 years ago and and it was the most mind-blowing hop i think i'd come across i was just like whoa this is incredible tropical lime amazing uh, and mm -hmm. then just over the years it uh, just whenever i got my hands on it it seemed to not deliver quite the same thing that i remembered um you know yeah. and i wonder if it was just where it was being grown who was growing it um picking windows all of those important interesting things but now i feel like there's there's a you know obviously a new wave of hop growers in New Zealand who probably I feel give like really are paying a lot of attention to how they do things um, and it should be a lot better. It's also a bastard of a hop to grow. Farmers yeah. hate it. Do you know this, Scotty? It it, it you. you I'm, I'm about to head down to the hop fields um, later this week, uh, and you'll drive around and all of the hops will be up the top of the wires, you know, spreading across the strings. Uh, and Rewaka will be halfway up 
it really is the most stunted, slow, sad looking thing. And farmers hate that because they don't want the other farmers to drive past their field and see these shitty hops. They want to, yeah. they want something the that hop. looks spectacular. Yeah. Hide it in the middle. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's what you're saying though. Like that's a, that is a symptom sometimes like, cause you've got me spouting go, geez, I wish there was more Rewaka. And then depending, you know, like a, with a variety like that, it's really, really hard when you get the extra acreage and you still might have a really small picking window and, you know, all these other things and, and, mm. you know, different you know different growers different locations all sorts of things that when hops become victims of their own success yeah you know and that's always tough you know and that's that's always a you know a bit a bit of a thing i know you know it seems like there's often that sort of you know sort of similar thing with amarillo the way it exploded out and then it became you know it became really really hard to to be able to nail it every time because you know, the the amount required was so huge and the pick and windows you know still relatively small and yep yeah. and very difficult to find anything that that recreates what i remember from the early the early amarello hey look this is an excellent segue onto something that we need to talk about you're australian i hold you personally responsible for galaxy uh yep. so it's, what what tell us <laughs> about galaxy galaxy yeah, um, I guess the little Aussie hop that could, in a lot of ways, it it definitely <laughs> transformed things down here. I think it made a lot of folks, uh, you know, uh, overseas really sort of sit up and and take notice of you know the Australian beer industry, but particularly like hop industry here in Australia. And um, yeah, it's it's done a lot of things for you know. I can't deny it was a huge part of my. Um, my history i suppose particularly when i was at stone and wood so it's another one where you know like they keep expanding and then as they expand then the um the uh you know the orders for it just the the demand for it grows at the same time so i I don't know if they're ever any you know ever really making that much ground on it so and it's grown in two sort of distinct areas as well so um you know there's always you know there's been a Victorian galaxy and a Tasmanian galaxy, you know. So, um, and you, you know, I think the vast majority of, of it is basically they're all group lots anyway. So hmm. it's ultimately homogenized, but, um, you know, it's it's just, I guess, the success story of it's, Australian. It's, it's pretty variable, isn't it? I mean, this is what I struggle yeah. with sometimes is that, you know, I, I, can pull off something that tastes great sometimes and other times not. I'll tell you what, I I was hanging out with an American brewer recently and they said something which I wish they hadn't said because I can't get it out of my head. And they were like, oh, you know, Galaxy, it's okay, but I really struggle with that peanut character. And I was like, peanut character? And now every time I do a Galaxy beer, I Mm -hmm. fucking smell peanuts. Peanuts? Peanuts. Yeah. Wow. I wonder yeah, what not sort penis. Of... Peanuts. Peanuts. <laughs> I wonder what sort of compound that might be. I do Isn't know, like, interesting. The... Yeah. I mean, at one point in time, I was probably throwing more galaxy in more tanks than anyone else on the planet. So hmm. when you know when we got Bolter going and um, and I had the chance to do that, I sort of stepped right back from galaxy. I just you know. I had all these other sort of snazzy American hops that I really wanted to integrate into beers and 
explore a lot a lot more because you know I felt like I'd done you know a lot of galaxy in my time and and mm. it does like over as you get through the season it definitely picks up sort of catty sort of aromas if you're not looking after it you know but I mean again that's probably another victim of its own success sort of piece where if they've got to keep expanding and you know if they've got to they've got to do that in a in a place that's reasonably close to the processing I suppose and that's where limitations you're probably going to have great lots and shitty lots just because of that you know because mm. it's like well yeah that's within half an hour's drive of the you know of, of the kilns and the and the um you know the picking machines and stuff so that's where we'll have to put it you know yep. which may not mean you get the best hops i mean we've had we've had some sort of shitty couple of shitty seasons like weather-wise down here as well so they've sort of played a part i would suggest but yeah it's um it is definitely variable and that's i'm guessing that's why their strategy is to um is to you know to, to sort of homogenize it as much as possible yeah to try yeah. minimize that i mean the risk is then you bring everything to the middle rather than have you might have some Absolutely. shitty stuff and as brewers we all want to have we want to get our hands on something that gives us the edge and is a little bit better than what everyone else has don't we can yeah. you can you offer anyone any advice on the best way to use Galaxy? Yeah, for mine, I would say be very very careful if you're going to use it hot side. You know, I think it's 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 really your best keeping your powder dry till you dry hop it. You know, mm-hmm. um, relatively short contact time. It's an mm-hmm. it's another hop that that uh, you can make really explosive beers using just Galaxy on its own. Mm. Um, but also like it's if you pick the right ones you know citra is a pretty obvious one to 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 blend it with Um, some of the other lesser known her lesser known aussie sisters are also really good to to use i mean i'm guessing most folks might have heard of victoria's secret Um, but you know galaxy and enigma can go well galaxy and topaz can go really well and, and the biggest thing i think is coming back to that soft hands approach because they're they're such big boisterous colonial hops you know that they've got a lot of they've got a lot of grunt they've got a lot of mongrel they've got an awesome you know awesome potential as far as sort of fruit character and all that goes but along with that and massively high oils at times you know that that along with that, you've got to be able to manage the, you know, the not so um, positive characteristics, but, you, you know, that you get in any hops, but mm-hmm. it's almost like it's highlighted in Galaxy. It's got all this great, fantastic tropical fruit and and peach and citrus character. And then on the other side, you've also got, if you're not careful, you've got the caddy and overly sort of burnt resiny character if you're not really careful mm-hmm. about how you use it. When we were... When I was at Stone and Wood, like, um, you know, that was my, my Brad, my boss's uh, beer, Brad Rogers, you know, he's, that was his beer. He designed all that. But I would have home brewers, other pro brewers, all sorts of people hitting me up wanting to know how how Pacific Ale was put together. And, you know, for me, it wasn't my baby. It was Brad, so it wasn't my place to say. But people would turn around and go, well, can I give you a recipe and just nod or wink or whatever? And the most amazing <laughs> thing was you just see the stupendous amounts of galaxy that folks would put into the the bees hot side and dry hop to try and replicate. Yeah. 
And again, not realizing that it's a less is more thing, you know, because mm. these compounds are so, you know, uh, you know, so full on and volatile, I suppose, that you it's pretty easy to cross a threshold from, you know, oh, that's good, that's better, that's fantastic, that's awesome. Oh, that's shit house. That's fuck, mm. that's terrible, you know, as you keep going up the grams per liter scale and and folks don't necessarily realize that with galaxy it, it's mm. taken me years like it's it took me years we had a um we've had a limited release we put out from time to time called hazy dc which is <laughs> an all aussie hot hazy obviously and angus young hasn't sued us yet so that's good and um again it was one where it took me a long time to you know, that was, I finally got that beer out and I finally realised I think I can tame the beast, you know, because mm. Galaxy and 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 some of her sisters are just like crazy fucking wild horses, you know. And if you can, if you can, if you can get the, you know, if you can get the saddle on them and, and just control them just enough, you'll, you'll get fantastic beer out of it, you know. So um, stay away from hot side. Less is more. Yet again, use them early and fresh. Like if you're only going to make so many Galaxy beers, I'd do that fairly early on in the piece. I don't think aged Galaxy is great for anybody. So, but that's true of most hops. So. That's awesome, Scotty. Um, you probably just doubled the sales of Australian hops in America uh, just by doing <laughs> that. Nice work. Hey, <laughs> look, we're probably we're probably rounding off to the end of this little chat, um, but. Let's finish off. What what do you reckon are the biggest challenges facing the brewing industry in Australia? And I guess that probably flows out into the world as well. Why not? What do you reckon? Uh, you know what? Like in in Australia, with you know, there's so many. There's a proliferation. Like I I think I said when I started at the Sunny Coast, when I turned pro, there was like 135 ish breweries all up. I think there's like 900 now in the space of what is it 14 15 years or something well that's a lot and i think uh when i was in the us september october i think someone quoted me about nine thousand over there like it's insane so obviously there's competition between breweries you know for shelf space for fridge space for you know attention but as much as anything i think the biggest threat you know, potentially or challenge is is from other beverages, people spending their money on other things, you know. Whether it's uh, the seltzer thing didn't really sort of blow up too big over here, but, you know, whether it's, whether it's those other sort of moderate alcohol sort of, you know, beverages that are, you know, really playing a part, um, the no alcohol thing sort of coming up a bit as well, there's that side of it. There's the usual things that everybody, wherever we are, are facing around sort of global, you know, supply chain issues and 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 stuff. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, it's I just I, I worry sometimes that with we as an industry that we don't want to paint ourselves into a corner because we've the in the, in the sort of growth and exploration of what beer can be. I think we've also managed to make it more gimmicky at times than it should be like and it's always good fun i love poking fun at myself and even at the beers we make but sometimes it's it's potentially to the detriment of beer that 
where you know particularly uh you know breweries who might be vying for attention or or have those insecurities around not being noticed and they make the really sort of stunt beer sort of Mm. things aren't always that great you know that's probably me just being jealous because I can't make them, but you know, I'm a pretty simple guy. I'm no, still a, trying to get. I mean, obviously, this is right. this is something that we've dealt with a lot, but it's you know, I mean, there has to be a good reason to do something in a beer. Yeah, I feel. it has to make it has to make it genuinely better or more interesting. Or, I mean, I think there's a line, and you can tell when you've crossed it. You can tell when it's yeah. a stump beer. Somebody, but somebody guys- put somebody put deer sperm in a in a beer here this was uh, quite a few years ago at probably peak silliness but um, it wasn't you beer was it? Se- uh, dear semen no it wasn't me i didn't put i would never put semen in a beer you know that <laughs> <laughs> of course mate no but see the thing is you guys are innovators so it's genuinely searching for you know and that's for for the folks out there that don't know pete he's probably one of the best in the world at making adjunct beers like Pete's the guy. If anyone can get something in a beer that you wouldn't have thought of, it's probably Pete. My, my. I with, guess what I'm saying with the back exception there, of deer semen, yeah. Apart, no. yeah. Apart from sort of animal, you know, genomics or whatever. Um, but I guess the thing is, when you've got like new breweries that start off making like really esoteric beers right off the bat because mm. six of their mates thought it was a good idea. Mm-hmm. um they i think a lot of that sort of stuff can be problematic and you get then you can get a lot of new entrants into the beer game who actually haven't got the basics down you know haven't got the discipline yeah. about how to make a solid lager or pilsner or ipa or you know a good pale ale that 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 your customers can come and drink and and rely upon you for you know any day of the week because that's kind of our job at the end of the day in a lot of ways and I don't think it's a boring or or a less than honorable thing to do because people end up relying on us you know we have to and you're you're the same like it's not my beer anymore it's their beer you know mm. and we've got to show up every day and make their beer properly you know and you know I wonder sometimes that people just sort of ride in on those coattails and just go well we're going to be the brewery that does you know like pastry stouts with you know animal fluids in them and all sorts of stuff like that and and you know is that a great place to start to build your your audience and also that you know beer is facing a you know a a lot of headwinds not just from the complexities of making beer but from the competition for attention you know from other beverages so you know we kind of need to i want us all to be great you know or as good as we can be and and that's not always the case if you if you're making beer because you think it's just going to get you attention rather than as you said you've got to have a bloody good reason to make a beer in the first place and then it doesn't matter what goes in it if it's if it's done really well but if it's done just to the hey look at me stuff like that works sometimes in festivals here and there you know as you know because we've got beer festivals set up to do some of that sort of stuff but i also think uh you know, we just got to make sure that as this industry matures, that all the new folks coming in, boys and girls that are that are making beer, young men and women, I should say, that are you know that are making beer, that are, have solid, solid foundations, because beer is a lot, lot older than any of us and our businesses, and 
there's a stewardship piece, you know. We we need to take that responsibility and make sure that, you know, beer's around and good beer's around long after we're not. So. That is a beautiful place to wrap this <laughs> interview up, Scotty. That was possibly the most profound thing I've ever heard you say, and there you go. <laughs> so, look, man, huge thanks, Scotty, for being so generous with your information and chatting i will always remember now your soft hands uh who can forget scotty and his soft hands um so look um that's it for for this episode scotty will be back uh on the next episode of this show as a host having a conversation with a brewer of his choosing and that'll be on air in two weeks so make sure that you tune into that um make sure you visit allaboutbeer.com follow on social media And remember, to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com forward slash allaboutbeer and buy them a pint. Why not? Thank you. I'm Pete Gillespie from Garage Project New Zealand. It's been a pleasure. Goodbye, Scotty. Goodbye, everyone. I love you. See you, folks. Love you, Pete. See you, bye. This episode was brought to you by First Tea. First Tea delivers the ingredients and experience brewers need for delicious beers and innovative flavors. Flexible order sizes and direct from farm teas for your next brew. Find out more about First Tea by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com.